Christ doing it, but he's doing it through means, through tools. Uh, and so that is our marching orders as a church, to make Christ known, uh, to make him known in every sphere of life, to share the gospel with people, world missions, uh, raising children, being involved in our various vocational fields. This is all how we make Christ uh, known in his creation and put his enemies under his feet as we announce him. Okay, so are we getting a picture of who's in charge in the church and in the world? Right? Then let's keep going. He is the heir of all things. Who wants to take, it says Hebrews 1 2, but take the first three verses because they kind of fit all as one thought, right? I'll actually include four because that's finishing the sentence too. Having become as much superior to angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay. Good. So he's the heir of all things. What does that mean that he is the heir? What is an heir? Someone who inherits a blessing? Yep. For sure. Okay. So, of what is Jesus, what kind of inheritance is Jesus receiving? His people. Yes, absolutely, his people. Okay, and this also helps to make sense when we think of how some people think that the gospel is narrow. Um, or, or worse yet, that God would have to be the one to intervene for any particular person to be saved. One way that it helps to make more sense of it is to see that the church is actually the Father's gift to the Son. It's a love gift from the Father to the Son. So it makes sense that God would call out a people from the world to give as an inheritance to His Son. That's what we are. We are a gift from the Father to the Son. And he uh, doesn't just take it on easy street. He earns this inheritance in a very real way. He purchases it. But uh, the church, and actually we would say uh, by the time of Christ's return, the world and everything in it is Christ's inheritance. The whole thing uh, is given in its fullness to Christ. Uh, and again, this is why the Great Commission goes beyond just making individual converts. It's to make Christ be known in every sphere. Okay? We want all of Christ for all of life because the whole thing, the entire cosmos is a gift from the Father to the Son. And so Christ needs to be known in every dark corner anywhere we would go. So we need to do archaeology to the glory of God and architecture to the glory of God and biology to the glory of God because all of those things are things that Jesus receives 
from the Father uh, to be glorified uh, in. So he is the heir of all things. And I know we've been talking about that, but um, this concept of an inheritance from the Father to the Son, or that, uh, that Christ owns all, that he needs to be known in all, is that still a concept that seems foreign or that we struggle through? Or is it making sense? Does it make sense? Can I be really nitpicky? Yeah, go ahead. They're not the same person. They're the same essence. <laughs> and this is why we struggle. Because what's even the difference? I don't know, but... Yeah. I don't know if I've ever shared with you that meme. I haven't shared it in the church chat. Maybe I should. But there's this bomb squad guy dressed in this heavy, heavy suit taking apart a bunch of wires on a bomb. And it says, this is what happens when theologians discuss the Trinity. <laughs> one, one wrong move and you could blow this thing up. It's very intricate work that we really don't understand. We really, truly don't. Okay? Does it make sense? All of Christ for all of life. There's not a sphere of human endeavor that exists autonomously from King Jesus. Yep. Did everyone hear what Audrey said? And this is a, a, perhaps the most important phenomenon that the church has lived through in the last hundred years, is what Audrey just said, is the development of secularism, which is a complete, coherent, religious worldview. And I will never get tired of saying it. Please never, ever accept the lie that the public square could be or should be neutral. One, it can't be. There's always a God at the top. Always. 100% of the time. And even if neutrality were actually possible, and everyone was granted an equal voice, what would be happening then is we would be sinning. Neutrality is sinful. Neutrality says God does not matter. He's one voice among several. Okay? So a neutral public sphere... In the Bible, what would that be called? If all voices have equal weighting, what's that called in biblical terminology? Idolatry. Paganism. Okay? Everyone doing right in their own eyes. Okay? Multiculturalism is a sin. If by that we mean everyone's religious presuppositions are equally valid, it would be a sin. Secularism is sinful. Tolerance is a sin. Sure it is. Flesh that out. Uh, well, if you... I mean, you look at, you look at so many denominations that are out there that are abominations that, that, that say that will let me remember 
you know, you can do things. You have to, you have to accept this, and you have to tolerate this. You know, that's just one example. Or we, or we tolerate uh, fornication, or we tolerate whatever. Well, that's that's completely, completely against what the Bible is telling you. So if we if we're tolerating the demonic, then we are not under the authority of the Bible. We're under the authority of ourselves, and we are God, and the Bible is no longer true. And that's what tolerance means. Yep. And, and we have to be careful because the secular world will try to use that word against us, uh, saying God is love, God is love. God's love is not not our love as Christians, but also they themselves are not tolerant. Um, they have a theology. They are enforcing their theology. They are they are working at it. You know, don't get fooled into using their words that they are misusing um, entirely. Yeah. Do you have anything here Dave just followed up with? Okay. We don't just fall for the trick when God's enemies use God's words like love. Don't accept their definition. So when Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, one of the things that he is ruling and reigning over right now is the dictionary. Okay? Language belongs to Christ. And so if some Marxist tells you what love and social justice looks like, go to your Bible and say, no, this is what love looks like. Love hates sin. If I love this girl, I'm not going to do something stupid before we're married. I'm going to love her properly the way Scripture says. Well, wait. Right? I'm going to love her properly. I'm going to pledge lifelong love and care before I use her for something. Right? For that example. But never accept God the, the definitions that God's enemies want to use. And that happens all the time. Whoever controls the dictionary wins. And because we want King Jesus to win, because we know he has won, is winning, and will win, uh, we use language in his service. Okay, So this really means all the way into every corner we have to extend the reach and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Everywhere. That's one of the things he's in control of. That goes with the word inclusion as well, which is the weapon against us. Yes. You don't, you don't include all of this when you're evil. And it's yeah. not new. And that's what's right. Yeah. If I do include that, I'm evil. Not if I exclude but no. I don't include sin. That's good. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, do it from love and acceptance. Yeah. So your love is basically another word for accepting, accepting everybody the way they are, but God's love is not an accepting of sin. Yep. That's, I forget where I read this, it was just in the last little bit. I think it was from Lewis, but uh, it doesn't matter. Where it talks about how we have weaponized the word love to accommodate sin, but think... Uh, and I'm, I won't say if, because it's not an if. Since Christ owns the cosmos, including the church, uh, would we say, if a, if a man's wife, just to shrink it down to human terms, if a man's wife is struggling, and she 
really doesn't respect herself enough to do her hair or to dress nice, you know, appropriately to go out into public, would we say that that man is loving his wife if he just leaves her in that shape? Or if a man loves his wife, is he going to help her feel better about herself, help her to present herself better? Why would we say that Christ is the kind of husband who doesn't care how his wife is doing? That would not be loving. He's the kind of husband who does care how his wife is doing. That's why we have to be in a bare-knuckle fistfight against sin. Because Christ does care how his wife is doing. So we need to put sin to death in our lives and encourage and help others to put sin to death in their lives. Absolutely. Never hear Lisa? This this also applies directly to disciplining children. Right? The father who refuses to give a well-needed spanking is not loving his child. He's sending that child on a path of destruction and indiscipline. Right? And what's kind of cute when he uses the crayons to write on the wall, uh, at some point will become spray paint on someone else's car, and then it's not so cute anymore. Right? But love disciplines. Love gives a spanking. Right? Love says no to certain things. Anything else on this? Okay, so he's the heir of all things. And the judge of the world. Who wants to take Acts 17? Tim? Okay. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world's righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Okay. So again, God has a day marked on his calendar. We don't know that day, but there is a day circled on God's calendar at which the final judgment occurs. And we'll soon find out that that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, comes riding on a white horse and has a sword dripping in blood. And once he's done his work, there's going to be blood that's about shoulder high in the streets. And people are going to be weeping and gnashing in in a lake of fire, screaming to be let out. And what we call a Christless eternity, we soon find out that this conquering judge is watching over them. Okay? Hell is not a Christless eternity. You know what? The very worst part of hell is that you cannot escape from the gaze of King Jesus in hell. That's the very worst part. People are not enjoying hell. They are frustrated, they are angry, and they hate every minute of it. And the worst part is, is the righteous judge is right there watching. And Revelation says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That is not a pretty picture. And some well-meaning friend will tell you, okay, but that's, that's symbolic language. It can't be that bad. Symbolism. 
Has anyone ever encountered a symbol that's less than the reality? The symbol is always less than the reality. If the Bible describes a lake of fire and smoke of torment going up forever and ever, the reality is worse than that. That's human language describing what that's like. That bloody sword is worse than that. So please don't ever talk about hell as a Christless eternity. It's far worse than that. That language always gives the impression that there's just kind of you just slither off into this vacuum. It's just this neutral space. And so, yeah, we're cut off from the blessings of Christ, but that's about it. In hell, you have to do everything that you want to do, and it's terrible. There's no restraint. There's nothing holding people back from stepping on each other and using each other and hating God even more than they hated Him when they went there in the first place. And after 10,000 years of the smoke of your torment going up, you are not one second closer to being done. Never talk about a Christless eternity. It is eternal torment. It's terrible. And gentle Jesus is the one who does it. And it's good. Because if he didn't do that, there would be no justice in this universe. It's good. Okay, so when things in life that bother us deeply and we wonder, is there going to be any resolution to this? The answer is yes. Yes, there will be. Yes. Okay, and I've got a very concrete example, but flesh that out. Oh, I want you to Okay. <laughs> I always have to Okay. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> who loves young children? Okay. Who likes holding a, a cute little girl with pigtails on their lap? Who knows that little girls like that get abused by men? A man who would do something terrible to a little girl, does he deserve to just go off into this feelingless vacuum? God is furious at that. God's going to kill over that. God did kill over that. And either that blood is Jesus' blood, or that man is going to pay for what he did for the rest of eternity. And it's loving. Because God loves that little girl. It would be unloving if hell ever came to an end. Here's the other thing when we talk about Christ's final judgment. Do you think if hell came to an end, people say, well, okay, these these sins are all finite. They happen in time. So how is it not an overreaction on God's part to eternally punish sin that happens finitely in time and then it's over? Is God overreacting? He's not. But how do we answer that objection? Two ways at least. They're, They're continuing to sin. Okay? Their sin is ongoing, so the punishment needs to be ongoing. It's not like in hell they quit hating God. 
The hatred intensifies. Okay? Also, does anyone know, as much as we find little kids cute, does anyone know the value of being a real image bearer of God? Does anyone know how infinitely terrible that crime is? To commit a crime against an infinite God? Yes, it happens in time in terms of the way we measure time. But any act of treason against an infinite holy God, there can be no end to the punishment for it. There can't be. Otherwise, God himself is not infinite. It has to be an eternal punishment. It must be because God is an eternal God. It cannot stop at any point. If it did, we would say, and if it did, if these people could work off their sin in hell and then it comes to an end and they're just annihilated. Here's the other thing. Then we're saying God's wrath can be satisfied apart from Christ. They did atone for their own sins. They spent three and a half million years in hell and then God's wrath is satisfied. Their sins are atoned for and that's it. There's so, so many problems with downgrading hell, with making it finite, with, with making it annihilation ultimately, with using language that frankly the Bible never talks about, like Christless eternity. It's hell. It's the lake of fire. It's eternal. We, we stand, uh, you know, And is that justice? Is that justice for the family of a murdered person? Six years, but they were pretty good. So now you're just not like is that that's not loving to anyone. Not to anyone. There was a hand up back here. I think they'll be sorry in the way that Judas was. They won't be repentant. They won't hate their sin. Yeah, they'll just they'll hate their circumstances, but they're I, because repentance is a gift from God, and once you're in hell, it's it, it's gone. There's a couple things there. Um, and I'm not sure how deep into the weeds we want to go. I don't think he was in hell in the final sense of hell. He was in Hades. We talked about that with the Apostles' Creed. There's this temporary kind of place until the final judgment, kind of two sides of Hades. Abram's bosom in the nether gloom. But even still, I don't think even from there, people are truly repentant. They may regret it. They may hate it. Right? Lazarus, or not Lazarus, Judas also regretted what he had done. As did Peter. But Peter's restored, and Lazarus goes and commits suicide. Repentance versus regret. It, what did I say? <laughs> I'm bad with names. Yes. Um, so Judas goes and commits suicide after betraying Christ. Peter is restored after betraying Christ. 
right? So there's, uh, there is a difference between repentance and regret. Say that again. To join him? Right. right. So it seems like he was sorry. Well, maybe he wasn't sorry. Maybe he just knew this was a bad place. And he didn't want others to do that. But I mean, that's quite loving to care about somebody else. In the sense, I don't think what we have... See, the difference between repentance and regret, and I don't doubt that people regret it, because they're not enjoying hell. They're not enjoying their torment at all. But repentance is not just, I'm sorry I did it. Repentance is, I hate sin. Right? I hate myself. I need to turn to Christ. And I don't think we have that in hell. And I don't even think in Judas's hardened position, he had that. I'm sure if someone would ask, hey, should I betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver? He'd say, no, it's not worth it. Regret. But why is his outcome so different than Peter's? And I think the difference is Peter's regret moves into actual repentance. Not just, I, I dislike the consequences of what I've done. Right? And we see this again if we shrink it down to little kids. Um, one kid gets caught doing something and you know there's no remorse, there's no you know, repentance. They just don't like that they're going to get a spanking now for it. That's as deep as the regret goes. But if it's not heartfelt, they'll do it again if given a chance. right? Whereas actual repentance is, no, I understand what the standard is. I love the standard. I can't believe here I am sinning again. Lord, please forgive me. right? That's, that's repentance. That's all the way down. Regret over I hate it here is, is a different kind of, of thing. So I... Um, that there would be regret and in some sense wishing to do it over again in hell, I don't doubt that at all. But what I don't think we have is people becoming soft to the things of the Lord. right? And some people have taught that, that there's this state of limbo kind of at the outer perimeter of hell for people who weren't particularly bad. And they can actually convert there. Like there's another, there's opportunity after death for conversion. Some people have taught that in church history. I don't, I don't think that's a sound view. I think once we're dead, it's, it's sealed. And I think that's true. Hell is terrible, but I think it's... I don't doubt that there's degrees of suffering in hell. Just like there's degrees of reward in heaven. So Jesus in Luke, maybe someone can quickly check. I think it's maybe in Luke 12 or 13, where Jesus talks about uh, the servant who knew his master's will and the servant who didn't know his master's will. And the one receives a light beating and the other one receives a severe beating. Okay, It's a worse thing to grow up in a Christian family and walk away from it than it is to be born deep in the jungle and never hear the name of Jesus. There's no question about that.
Is it in Luke 13? Luke 12? Where? Why don't we turn there? Luke 12, 41 and on. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is faithful and wise manager, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay? I, I do think that there is a legitimate application to the final judgment. It will be terrible for everyone, but I think there are degrees. And I wouldn't go so far. Remember, uh, anyone heard of Dante's Inferno? Where there's these circles of hell, right? And, and in the innermost circle, the, the sins are the most severe. And then there's these lighter degrees or circles of hell further out. If I'm not mistaken, Dante put Pope Boniface pretty close to the center of the worst circle of judgment. He was a satirist, and so even before the days of memes, people did communicate via tracts and cartoons, and so Dante was doing something with that. I wouldn't be that specific to say this sin gets you into this circle and so forth, but uh, most certainly, I do think there is adequate basis to say that there's degrees of reward in heaven and there are degrees of punishment in hell. Anything else on that? Does that make sense? Is that a new concept that there would be degrees of reward and suffering? Or did we just think hell is the same for everyone, heaven is the same for everyone? Suddenly got quiet. I'm thinking about it. Which? That there's degrees of reward or that it's all the same? There's degrees? Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Is that a new concept for anyone else? question, you're looking at two different things. One is God's secret operation, election, and one is what God holds man accountable for. 
We can't see election. We can't see God's sovereign purposes. What we can see is kids growing up and learning the Bible and praying with mom and dad and being taught right from wrong. And that is the will of God that we are accountable to obey. Okay? Um, so in terms of human volition, human will, the human mind, um, the secret invisible category of election doesn't mean you have mental faculties or you don't. Right? Unbelievers know what they're doing. Unbelievers can read the Bible. They know what sin is. What they're lacking is the moral umption to be converted. But they're still sinning from more light that they have been given. Okay, So election is something that's taught in the Bible, and we have to say yes and amen to it. But we can't see it. Right? And we can't know it. And I'd actually say there's great hope in that, because that means that the hardest case you know, you cannot possibly know that they're not elect. They very well may be. If you look at Saul of Tarsus, when he's killing Christians, you'd say, well, that guy's got no hope. right? He, and he's sinning against great light, and he was, because he was taught as a rabbi. But God's grace is bigger than that hardness. But he was still sinning against light, knowing what he was doing. So I, I, I'd say that question is, is looking at two different things. One, the invisible thing, which we can't know, and the other is that which we are accountable to know uh, and to uphold to, and to train our children. And so if, if children from believing families walk away, they're doing so knowingly. Okay? They're following their heart. They're doing what they want. Um, and that's a greater sin than some tribal guy who's still sinning, still rebelling against God, but isn't sinning against a lifetime of Bible instruction. If that, if, if that makes sense. I, w- I would just say we're looking at two different aspects there. I shouldn't say, does that make sense? But does that... <laughs> does it? Okay. And maybe it won't. And that's okay too. Yep. Did everyone hear what Keith said? Romans 1 teaches that even nature itself teaches certain things. I won't be explicit in this in any way, shape, or form, but I'd say this. Just do a biological look at a male body and a female body, and eventually you can find out that feminism is sin. Okay? Just on biology. Just, just look at what a man's body is made for and look at what a woman's body is made for. No divine revelation. You just know feminism is ridiculous. And to say that it's not just strictly uh, referencing you decide to go against the grain of nature. You know, some would say, so, so what? Because that's where the conscience and the law are going to come out. Yep. Yep. So no one gets a pass. No one's innocent, but some people have more light than others, right? Some have only the light of nature. Some have the light of nature plus praying parents, plus Bible instruction, plus this, this, and this, that they're very intentionally walking away from. Okay, it is quarter after. Then we'll maybe stop there at note seven. Anything else to add to this before we shut her down? I'd like to speak more about the 
people at the Revolution were, were there, where they see what's happening, they see Christ's judgment, they know exactly what's happening, but instead of repenting, they cry out for the lost to come. Yep. And I think that attitude still exists in that. And here, while on earth, they have a chance to repent, they refuse. Yep. Everyone here, Alfred? About the state of people in hell? They can't stand the torment, so they call out for rocks to crush their heads so it ends. And that would actually be a mercy. If God sent a rock to crush their head and it was over, that would be a mercy. But it's not that. He doesn't do it. And there's one passage there too, and this is terrible stuff. I don't enjoy talking about this, but this is what the Bible talks about. We have to understand the depth of the problem to understand the grace of the solution. There's one passage too that talks about they gnaw their tongues in anguish. That is the depth of their hatred towards God. They're gnawing their tongues in anguish. But to do that and keep their sexual sin is still preferable than to bend the knee in submission to King Jesus. They'd rather keep the sin and gnaw their tongues forever and ask for a rock to crush their head so it's over. But repentance to King Jesus is a step too far. That's unacceptable. It's terrible stuff. As terrible as it is to hear it and to be reminded of it, there, I, what I can appreciate is the balance of preaching here too. That, like sometimes, like how I was raised, oh, that was a good moment, right? Like a good thunder sermon, like a good healthy foundation sermon. But there has to be that balance, and that's something I really appreciate here too. That. Yes, there's grace, and, and that definitely should be allowed in the church. But to always be under the fear and the wrath of God, it's who wants to come then? Who wants to who wants to answer his call? Well, we need to talk about grace that I personally myself to know that that's exactly what we deserve because of God. And to remind them of that consequence that not matter if Amen. Yeah, and look at this. I mean, not only do we have no fear of God's wrath as Christians, look at this. We're all dressed in nice clothes, in a warm building, with vehicles, air conditioning, refrigeration, food, money, leisure. There's a story of a a Huguenot lady. The Huguenots were French uh, Reformed Christians before they basically all left to South Africa or got killed. And in one particularly tough war, there was an old French Huguenot widow whose family was starving and she finally got a little piece of bread. And she said, all this and Jesus too? I'm so blessed. I feel ashamed of that because my life is pretty easy and I feel like I deserve more lots of times. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you that he is the prophet who comes to speak once and for all. That he is the priest who takes the burden of our sin once and for all. 
and that he is the ultimate standard-bearer, general, judge, and lawgiver once and for all. Lord, I pray that we would see Christ for the infinitely supreme, infinitely valuable intercessor that he is for us. Lord, help us to see our need. Help us to see what we deserve. Lord, help us to spend enough time contemplating that, that we are amazed by grace. But then, Lord, don't leave us there so long that we wallow. Help us to then move to a happy acceptance, an overflowing gratitude for what you've done for us, that we can delight and see you as supremely valuable, that we can live lives of praise. Lord, I pray that you'd be with all of us and that you would give us your spirit, that whether it's through the teaching, through the preaching, through our singing, through our thought lives, through our fellowship, the way we talk with one another, that we would be balanced that we wouldn't be so infatuated with your wrath that there's no grace, and also that we wouldn't treat your grace like a small plaything that doesn't really address a real problem. Lord, help us to be balanced. Lord, and I pray that we would have the humility and the perspective of this godly French widow. All this, and you too, who are so kind. Give us a position of reverence, of soft hearts as we prepare to Move to corporate worship this morning. Lord, we commit each one, we commit each part of this morning's service into your hands. Teach us, feed us, guide us. Lord, we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.